Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here as always with Victor Davis Hanson, the Morton and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, I want to talk today about President Obama, which is how you christened Donald Trump in a recent piece for National Review, not just as a change from President Obama, but in a way as a kind of thoroughgoing refutation. And let me just start with this quote from your piece. Contrary to popular supposition, the left loathes Trump not just for what he has done. It is often too consumed with fury to calibrate carefully the particulars of the Trump agenda. Rather, it despises him mostly for what he superficially represents. Explain that. If you were to kind of collate Comedy Central's values, Vanity Fair's values, Stanford University's values, uh, MSNBC's values, NPR, you would kind of come up with a common denominator of the way that people are supposed to act, talk, appear, think. And Trump's very mannerisms, his vocabulary, his superlatives, his orange hair, uh, his tan, his long tie, his girth, his background as a Manhattan, his outspokenness, his sort of scatology, all of that is not just incorrect, it's just not done. And so people don't like the reification of the United States. to the degree that the president does that. Uh, they don't like that. As far as the message, uh, Trump is, I mean, he's not like, it, it's not sophisticated. It's basically what Obama did gives us a reason to undo it. And, and undoing it, because what Obama did was very radical, the undoing of it is even more conservative than where we were to start with with George W. Bush. So by that I mean, if he's going to let in everybody and have open borders, then we're going to finally deal and build a wall in a way that George W. Bush never imagined. If uh, Obama is going to stop fracking on federal lands, new leases, then we're going to open Anwar and we're going to open federal lands in a way that George W. Bush never envisioned. If Obama's going to raise the tax income tax, then we're going to revise the tax code in a way that George W. Bush never envisioned. And the result is that while the left hates the messenger, the actual message is something they haven't even paid any attention to because it's a radically conservative message in a way that the Trump conservative base never imagined. We haven't seen anything like it since Reagan. And we haven't really come to grips with it on the right or left yet, but it's a very... it's, very, it's more Reagan than Reagan. Victor, there are a lot of Republicans who were either opposed to Trump or at least squeamish about Trump who will often respond to praise for him by saying, you know, you probably could have gotten the same results with a lot less drama from any other potential Republican president. You suggest in this piece and you sort of hinted at it there a moment ago that you're not convinced that's true, that there are areas where he's going further than your garden variety conservative might. Make that case for us. Yeah, that's an ideological and a political argument. And the political argument means can any of the other 16 primary candidates have won the electoral college? I just can't imagine Marco Rubio winning Michigan. Uh, I can't imagine, I don't even think Scott Walker would have won Pennsylvania or much less Ted Cruz because they didn't appeal to the Reagan Democrat Tea Party 
um, base in a way that Trump does. Part of it was because of his celebrity status from his TV show. Partly it was his unorthodox approach. Part of it was his direct speech. Part of it was his ridicule of the political class after eight years of Obama. Then the ideological element is Trump's not invested in anything. So he doesn't have a family dynasty like the Bushes or he's not saying as Mitt Romney was in 2008, thinking of 2012 to run again. Um, I don't think he thinks he's building a career for Ivanka. He may or may or not. So he's unleashed. He's sort of Trump unbound. And he doesn't play by any of the conventional rules. He doesn't play by any of the... He's not subject to any of the conventional leverage or pressures. And that is sort of liberating. So when you want to get out of the Paris Climate Accord, he just says, does it. And I think people would have told George W. But you can't do that. Or Mitt Romney, you know, John McCain, President McCain, please don't do that. The French are going to go wild. And then they said, why don't you move? You know, the Senate voted to move the 10 years ago more. Plus, they voted to move the embassy to Jerusalem. And people would have said, you just can't do that. The Palestinians will go crazy. He said, not only will I do it, I'll cut the Palestinians' aid. Because why do we want to give money to people who don't like us? And... That's pretty much what he's been doing. So if you're a Hoover economist and we have the best in the world, you think, oh my gosh, if you deregulated, if you pushed energy expansion, if you revised the tax code to draw back foreign uh, American capital back to the United States, if you gave corporations a break on the tax rate, if you gave middle class, but who, what Republican would do all that? Well, suddenly Trump, you know, an advisor comes in and says, here's what the experts say. We'll get 4% growth. You'll be a winner. Okay, let's do it. We haven't quite seen that yet. And uh, there's no inhibitions about saying or doing something that usually tells the Republican presidents or politicians in general, pull back a little bit. Trump's idea is somebody's telling Trump or Trump is thinking himself, we're in a war for, for free market economics political correctness being, you know, disabused of its currency and uh, strong deterrent national offense, I'm going to do it. I, I, it's very rare to see that happen. Another passage here that deserves a little bit more exploration. You write in this piece, quoting you, even Trump's critics sometimes concede that his economic and foreign policy agendas are bringing dividends in some sense, it is not so much because of innovative policy, but rather that he is simply bullying his way back to basics we've forgotten over the past decades. There is a premium, Victor, sometimes in policy circles. One saw this, for instance, in Hillary Clinton's campaign in having the most intricate, most detailed, most original policy prescriptions. And if I read you correctly here, you're saying not only is Trump not really doing that, but he's actually making a lot of progress precisely because he's not doing that. Explain that. Yeah, I, I think Trump would say to us, hey, this is the greatest country in the world. The trick is not getting 3 to 4% GDP. The trick in the past is how not to get it. And Obama figured out a very intricate, over-detailed Byzantine way of zero interest rates, raising income taxes, more and more regulations, raising the corporate tax rate. Um, getting highly politicized European Union socialist-like appointees and EPA or uh, Interior and 
talking down the economy. You didn't build that, not the time to profit. You should have stopped making money a long time ago type of things. Trump comes along and basically says, you know, the whole key is psychologically make people happy to make money. Praise the successful guy. Go out and make money. And let's deregulate. Two, three regulations are going to go for every one we, we implement. I think he's 66 ahead now. And uh, let's drill it onward. We want cheap oil. We want the guy, you know, the farm worker to get to work with cheap oil. And and his attitude about minority politics is, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into that, but I do know that if we grow at 4% GDP and the unemployment rate's 4%, whether the employer is racist or not racist or illiberal or not illiberal, at some point he's going to go into the inner city and say, I need you to go frack or I need you to drive a truck or I need you to be a technician, or I need you behind a lathe, or I need you to drive a bulldozer. Especially if you cut illegal immigration, you're not bringing in a half a million workers. So Trump's idea is basically it's all reductive to business, psychological um, psychological attitude toward making money and being successful. And it's, that just drives the left crazy because the left's idea of wealth is you should either inherit it or you should find some clean way of making it and then spend your life culturally trying to deprecate it or sort of the, pull the ladder up into the attic after you've been there. Trump is just unabashed. Money is good. The more money, the better. He wants everybody to be successful. And that will call, that will, I don't know if he's right or not, but his attitude is if everybody's making money, they have no time to get into identity politics or gender politics or political correctness, because they're all going to be great, great, great. On foreign policy, the liberal diagnosis of the contrast between President Obama and President Trump would probably be to say that Obama was careful, he was cautious, he believed in soft power and the potential of diplomacy, and that President Trump has thus far proven himself to be reckless, if not trigger happy. How would you contrast the two? Oh, I, I think it's a little bit different. I, I think the consensus is wrong. It's basically a view of human nature. Barack Obama has a therapeutic view that um, human nature is perfectible and that all these people in Venezuela or Cuba or Iran that we think are enemies are really not, that if we give them money or we give them they're better educated or if we go more than three quarters of the way and we show them that we're we like them and that we're nice, then they'll reciprocate in kind. Trump comes along and says, you know, may or may not be true. I just can't take the chance. I don't think human nature's changed. People react to rewards and punishments. So when you do the Rand deal, the more concessions you give, the more they're going to interpret that magnanimity as weakness to be punished rather than, you know, you know, largesse to be appreciated and returned. And so he has a, I guess a pre-enlightened view of human nature. It's more medieval or classical that human nature doesn't change and people will be good to you if uh, they fear you. You have to be just as well. But uh, it's time for America to tell NATO, you know what? You have a bigger economy in the EU in aggregate than we do. You're not paying your 2%. And when you talk like that to them, they're more likely to pay the 2% than 
Obama's, no, we can't ever really demand it of you. We understand there's historical reasons, but please kind of sort of, wouldn't you want to contribute a little bit more? Or if you say to the Iranians, hey, we, you kind of have some hostages and we'll give you kind of 400 million and we'll even do it at night so none of us get embarrassed. And about those spot inspections, that we'll just kind of not, we'll not, let's just not talk about that. If you want to go ahead and do it, do it. And, you know, would you please kind of rein in Hezbollah a little bit and don't give so much money uh, to Bashar Assad? And by talking that way, they feel that the Iranians are like them. They they went to Harvard or they went to Yale or they go to the Aspen Institute. They said, yes, of course, we're like-minded sophisticates and we'll reciprocate. And Trump comes along and said, I've seen these guys. I work with them in building a building. I work with them uh, social activist groups. I have to deal with crooked politicians. I know how you people think. You just get tough with them and you be fair and honest and tough and then they'll respect you. If you're not, they'll have nothing but contempt for you. So he sees a guy like Putin and he said, the thing about Putin is you don't insult him, but you treat him like the thug he is. You you're stand up to him. Whereas Obama would think, well, I, I really don't want to stand up to him. It would be kind of dangerous or too mean or it would be, have all consequences. So I'm going to kind of ankle body him and, and get angry and berate him and say, Derry, you're macho. You're a class cut up. You think you're – and that's the worst thing to do is to humiliate somebody from a position of weakness. It's far better to speak softly and carry a big stick or speak loudly and carry an even bigger stick. <laughs> One area where I think you could arguably posit some similarity, broadly speaking, between Obama and Trump is that they have both been outsized cultural figures, which is to say even more than most presidents, neither of them were sort of narrowly cabined to the world of government. These are both men that seem to luxuriate in being the center of attention but with very different cultural influences. How, how would you compare them on that front? Yeah, I think you're right. I think as a man of the left versus now a man of the right Trump is that the left looks at very ambiguous about uh, money. They, they're, they're desperate for money and they want money, but they want money to express their taste and culture. And Trump wants money for status of the most in-your-face kind. He wants a big house, a big car. And it's much for my, me. It's much more honest. Whereas, I mean, Obama is going to build a huge, ostentatious library uh, in Chicago. He's I, he's probably going to build have somebody build for him a big estate in Hawaii. He just bought a big mansion, but he'll do it in such a way that's considered tasteful. He'll deny that he's doing it, or he'll just sort of shrug, or he'll make sure that there's proper you know wood floors. There's no. He's not going to have Obama and gold letters above his mansion in the way that Trump might. So that, that's a, that's the big difference between them, that they are outsiders, but one feels that he's just too clean to get dirtied by money, but he's desperate for money. And where Trump thinks that if he is dirty, money's even dirtier, and he didn't even care. He just wants money to express himself. It's much more honest. So the guy that has two... The guy that's making $80,000 and he works, um, you know, behind, in a factory, a UAW factory, and he takes that disposable income and he buys a snowmobile and a jet ski, we make fun of. The guy who makes 80000 as a professor and uh, he takes his wife to Cornell and they rent each year, you know, 
night watercolor on the beach or something is considered to be much more tasteful, but they both want money and they both have different ways of expressing it. And I think that's, they're similar and they're different, but I think Obama appeals to a very different constituency than does Trump. And I think in some ways Trump's constituency is, is as bigger, bigger. So the final question that I'll put to you is our regular listeners will know you've criticized the president when you thought that he merited it. Uh, but you certainly have not been as down on him as many of your conservative colleagues, certainly not as much as those in the uh, never-Trump camp, to be sure. Still, there is this sense amongst almost everyone on the right that there are a lot of unforced errors, at least with the president, a lot of avoidable controversies or dust-ups that probably have a drag on his poll numbers, could have down-ballot effects as you get to the midterms. So let's just close by having you sort of help your fellow conservatives think through the cost-benefit analysis here is what they are getting from the Trump administration worth more than the hits they're taking because of the Trump administration? Well, the way I kind of do that is I say, okay, we're at year one with President Hillary Clinton. What would the Supreme Court look like? What would the EPA look like? What would our energy future look like? What would the tax code look like? What would the entitlement code look like? What would the the border look like? What would our interior policy look like? What would we be doing on campus look like? And I think it would be a very different picture. Now, your question is, is it different, i.e. positive enough to put up with what Trump does, which opens the second half of the question, uh, the answer, and that is, let's think of all the terrible things Trump has said and done. Scatology, you mentioned. Well, I mean, Obama said that Mitt Romney was a bull blank ear. You know, he said that, and he said there was a blank storm uh, in Libya. And um, let's say Trump was insensitive when he kind of, I thought, because as a grandfather of a disabled child, I thought he was terrible when he kind of wiggled around. Then I thought, well, you know, that's exactly what Obama, he made fun of the Special Olympics and his top aide said, made fun of Netanyahu and said he was Asperger-y, as if he had Asperger's syndrome was like a joke. And people say, well, Trump really doesn't know geography. And I think, what, he thinks the Falcon, the Falkland Islands are the Maldives or that Hawaii is Asia. So a lot of the criticism of his reckless speech is ideologically driven, both on the right and the left, um, because I think that with Obama, we sort of said you can't have any criteria on a president because he's he's Obama. So if he thinks there's 57 states or uh, he makes fun of the Special Olympics or he says take a gun to a knife fight or get in their faces – or he writes off half the country almost as clingers. That's okay because he's Obama. He went to Harvard. But in Trump's case, you're going to report on everything. And this is a change, uh, Troy, in my way of thinking because I used to think completely that Trump was just so sloppy that he was hurting his message. And then I started to think, what if people really did report 90% of every administration in a negative fashion. I wrote an article about this with FDR. FDR's administration would not have been um, the successful defeat of Japan in 1945. It would have been the line FDR had 250 blood pressure over 140. The guy gulped down cottage cheese and crackers and um, cold mutton. 
and he drank three martinis a night. He chain smoked. He was disabled. He used his own daughter as a go-between to have an affair with Lucy Mercer. Three affairs uh, that we know of in the last it was 10 years while he was disabled. And he hid his health conditions from the American people. Now, would anybody remember if you reported that day after day about the Okinawa campaign or the Iwo Jima campaign? I don't think so. Or if we could say JFK deflowered a 19-year-old staffer in the presidential bed. Can you imagine that? Or would they report on facing down Khrushchev and the Cuban Missile Crisis? So I think a lot of what we think is sloppy is that people are leaking and we're obsessed. And 90%, 9 out of all 10 stories do not report. We had two consecutive quarters of plus GDP growth. The stock market's at a record level. Business confidence is a record level. Consumer confidence is the highest it's been in 17 years. Unemployment's going to be below 4%. Lowest it's been in peacetime probably in 50 years. Uh, energy production is going to hit, hit 11 million barrels. If Obama had that record the first year, he would be considered a walk on water. So I've kind of changed a little bit. I used to think that Trump's uh, miscues were all self-inflicted and disastrous. And of course they are. But a lot of them is because they're reported. And often they're from private conversations. A lot is just... The anger, he just lashes out because he knows they've attacked his wife, his family, himself. They've said that he tampered with election, um, the voting. They sued that said voting booths were in three states were manipulated. They sued and said the electors should not follow the electoral college votes in their states. They accused him of collusion. They accused him of being a tax cheat. They accused him of being a philander. They've accused him of uh, obstruction. I don't know to the degree that they're completely false, but it, uh, we've never seen anything like that, uh, in, in, not even with Richard Nixon. So if it was me and they were doing that to me, I think I would be saying fake news and I'd be lashing out. I hope I wouldn't, but I would be doing that. So, And then finally, just to end, we don't know the effect of that. I'm sitting in my Stanford office with a view of the campus, and in the abstract, I can say, oh, boy, it's so terrible that Donald Trump does this and that. But I don't know the effect of people in Bakersfield or Reno, Nevada, when they see him lash out and say things, uh, when he says the blank hole or or he says that these countries are blank, blank, they say, yeah, they are. And now he's telling the truth, and he didn't he didn't say it publicly. But if they want to report it privately, then it, I'm going to judge whether it's true or not. I say things in my own private life; they will say, and if it all came out. So I don't think any of us that observe politics can yet calibrate the effect um, on the elector electorate, um, because a lot of people maybe four to five percent still, as was true in the 2016 election, don't tell us what they really think. They, they tell us what they should think or what society approves of them thinking. But they look at Trump and he's sort of a goad. They, they use him as an instrument to get back at a lot of people they're angry at. All right. Thanks, as always, to our listeners for tuning in to the Glasses Podcast. If you haven't already, remember to pick up Victor's new book. It's called The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. And if you enjoy the Glasses Podcast, please rate the show on iTunes. We'll be back with another episode soon. For Victor Davis Hanson, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.